Well, it's summer. Most of us, probably, some of us, been to the seaside. Who's been to the seaside so far? Quite a number of us. It seems to be the kind of thing we do around summertime, isn't it? You've already seen from the pictures earlier that we've been to the seaside. Not on holiday yet, we're going next week, but we've been to the seaside. We know how to live. We went to New Brighton. (laughs) Really exciting. Actually, it was really nice. If you haven't been recently, go. It's well worth a visit. But for many of us in this country, we view the seaside as a kind of place of relaxation, don't we? We have that kind of feeling that you go to the beach, you go to the sea, you go and relax. And that goes back to the 18th century, apparently. People started to visit the sea for sort of recovery from illness. And it used to be very fashionable to go to the seaside. By the time you get to the Victorian time, you start seeing places like this. Where is that? Anybody? No. It's New Brighton. New Brighton used to have a tower that was even bigger than Blackpool's. But places like Blackpool, Rail, Southport, and even New Brighton, people used to come out of the dirty industrial cities. They used to go to the sea, they used to sit on the beach, walk down the prom, go on donkey rides, all those kind of things that we sit back and think, that's what the seaside is all about. If you're honest, is that your view of the beach? No? Do some people have that view of the beach? Yeah. We probably differ, but I think a lot in our national psyche views the beach, the sea, generally as the place you go on holiday and the place you go to relax. But you know, that hasn't always been the case. In no way at all have people always viewed the sea like that. If you go back to the time of the Bible, people were essentially terrified of the ocean, terrified of the sea. It was the place of chaos. It was the place of unknown depths. It was a place where these nasty sea monsters might suddenly appear and devour you. It was a place where shipwrecks took place. People died in the sea. People were scared of it. Go right back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What do we find? I'm just going to read it. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. What do we see at creation? We see the chaos and the Spirit of God moving over the waters. And then what does God do? He brings order out of chaos. Out of these waters, he says, let there be light. And there was light. Now we're to fast forward right to the other end of Scripture, to Revelation 21 verse 1. And he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I don't know if you ever read that verse and thought, what's the sea done wrong? Oh, why is the sea being got rid of at this point? Well, again, it links into that mindset that the sea is the place of chaos. The sea is the place where unpredictable things happen. It's the place of turmoil. And when God says, I make everything new, turmoil and chaos goes. Yeah, what an amazing truth this morning. When God says, I make everything new, All that is chaotic is done away with. And so we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 130. It's one of the seven psalms of confession that we find in the book of Psalms. And it's a psalm that starts off being about the sea. And we need to have that Old Testament viewpoint of what the sea is. So get those images out of your mind of Blackpool, if you're still there, or Tenerife, or perhaps somewhere slightly more exotic, and put yourself into that mindset where actually the sea is scary where the sea is the place of chaos. 
In verse 1, we get this reference to the sea, out of the depths. It's talking about the depths of the ocean. And here, what we see in this psalm is that the chaos of the sea is linked to sin and to failure. It's linked to human chaos and sin. Now, the psalmist, he gives us no idea of what the situation is. We're not told. We're not told what this psalm is about. Nor should we try and link it with any other passage of Scripture. This stands alone. And it stands alone for everybody who's found themselves dealing with sin in their life. Now, that's all of us, isn't it? Every single one of us finds ourselves in need of this psalm. Romans 3, verse 23. But all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We have all been in the depths. You may be there this morning, in that place of entanglement, feeling sucked down and overwhelmed by your own failure. My first experience, I suppose, of dealing with with failure in life was not sort of big moral failure or ethical failure. It wasn't um, something to do with money or anything like that, but it was this. It was my driving test. Now, I failed it the first time. That's not so bad. But then I failed it again. And I still remember to this day the walk of shame into the sixth form common room when I was 17, going to see all my friends who knew I was taking my driving test. Nobody else had failed it twice. And here's me walking to say, I failed again. Did I sin by failing my driving test? No. No, I I didn't, actually. It does depend what I did. I just got a bit nervous and did a rather bad manoeuvre, and I failed as a result. Is all failure sin? No, not all failure is sin. But all sin is failure. All sin is failure of some part or other. Failure to love God, failure to love other people. But human failure, even if it isn't sin, is a nasty habit of being a breeding ground for sin itself. You know, when I failed my driving test for the second time, that of itself wasn't sinful. My thoughts towards the examiner, however, (laughs) left a lot to be desired. And you see how quickly you start to spiral down and you start to get sucked into that place of being in the depths. But actually, that was quite a respectable failure. You know, I can share that with you this morning. We can make a laugh over me failing my driving test. I can put it on Facebook. I can write it in a book. Whatever I want to do. Nobody is going to think, oh, that's awful. He failed his driving test. That's sort of like failure on the beach. You know, paddling in the shallow waters. It's not failure in the swirly depths of the ocean. That goes something far deeper in this psalm. You know, what happens when our human failure is not respectable? What happens when it is something that is actually deeply hurtful to ourselves, to God, and to other people? You know, what happens if we failed big time? It might be in a relationship. It might be with our family. It might be something we've done with our money. It might be sexually. It might be with our honesty. It might be that we've allowed something to control us. It might be just in the way that we've developed really bad attitudes to other people. I don't know if you've been glued to the the TV this week with the Olympics. Quite a few nods, I think, we have as a family, watching all kinds of things that we never knew we were interested in. And one thing that I think our boys have really got into has been the diving, the the synchronized diving. And I don't know if if you've seen the stark difference between how the pool started out at the beginning of the week to the, the rather pond green that it is now. 
But it was quite interesting to watch because when we were watching, I think it was the synchronized diving when we actually, when the, the British pair won gold. And there was, there was this, these two divers who um, dived in, and one of them really mucked up badly. Badly, badly mucked up. And he was absolutely mortified. You know, and you're watching it, and you think, oh, I wouldn't have done that. You think, actually, you know, if I tried to do that, I would have snapped. I don't quite know what would have happened, but it would not have gone down well. But actually, there is failure that happens that is visible, isn't there? Failure that everybody can see, respectable or not, and it's just out there in the open. But actually, there's an awful lot that goes on underneath the murky green water that we can't see. One of the things the divers were saying is now that water had turned that colour, they couldn't see one another when they got into the water. They just couldn't see each other. didn't know what was going on. So often, that is where the failure takes place, isn't it? Where even those closest to us, even those who are walking life with us, do not know the extent of the failure that's going on in our heart. It's hidden. It's not seen. It's not visible. It's not respectable. We don't want anyone to find out. And we can feel that it's sucking us down. Sucking us down. We feel like we're there. That there is no hope. That there is nothing that we can do to pull ourselves out. I don't know if you feel like that about any area of your life at the moment. That actually part of your life is just spiraling and it's sucking you into the depths. What does the psalmist do when he's there? You've got your Bible in front of you. Just look at verse 2. Just simply cries out for mercy. Cries out to God for mercy. Now this is a raw cry. It's not a cry of sort of entitlement. God, I know you'll forgive me, blah, blah, blah at this point. But it's just, Lord, have mercy. You know, we live with the blessings of grace, don't we? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we know that when we come to him in true repentance and confession, God will forgive us. We know that. Scripture tells us that. That is all to do with the character and the faithfulness of God. But you know, I think there's a real danger that we end up cheapening grace that we end up not thinking that actually our failure is so significant in our life. And we actually belittle, if we do that, what Jesus did on the cross. It was not cheap that Jesus went to the cross for us. That is not cheap love. That is God giving of absolutely everything he has for us. We must never cheapen grace. Romans 6, verse 1. This is from the New Living Translation, which I just think puts this verse amazingly well. It says, well then, Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? If God's grace is wonderful, it's amazing, but it is deeply bought. It's deeply bought. And our cry should go up to the Lord when we find ourselves in the depth. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I don't know where you're up to this morning. I don't know whether you find yourself in that place. You know, in the place where you just feel like you are swirling in the deep, where where things are gripping you. And perhaps nobody else knows about it. Perhaps it is so hidden that it's just sucking you down. What does the psalmist say? Cry out. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to the Lord who is merciful. Not based on our character, but based on the faithfulness of God, because we know that when we cry out to him, he will be faithful in his answer. Look at verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? 
just taking you back to that driving test experience. I still remember being in the car, both those driving tests. I can still remember the smell of the lady's perfume, who was my examiner. You know those things stick in your mind? And her there with the tick list, putting crosses in all the boxes that I was doing wrong as we went through. The first time I failed, I failed with six major faults. That's an achievement. (laughs) I'm actually quite a good driver now. Since I've learned, it's really not a problem. But it was at that point. Sometimes I think we have a view of God that he is like that. That he is there sort of ticking off those major faults in our life and actually pushing us down further and further into the depths. If God is not like the driving instructor. God is not there keeping a record of our sin in that kind of way. God will forgive and will restore and will remove the minute we turn ourselves back to him. So what of this forgiveness? What of this forgiveness that he talked about? I wonder if you'd like to press the rewind button over some areas of your life. Just have the chance to to live them again. I know I would. I'm not going to tell you what they are or what I would do differently, but there are certain things that if I could have the chance to go back and redo something, I would do it. I would do it. I would press rewind and I would do something totally differently. You know, forgiveness is nothing to do with getting a rewind button. It's nothing to do with getting a rewind button. Now, it may surprise you, um, but sometimes in our house, Claire and I don't always see eye to eye on things. You know, we're both very quiet, retiring sort of people. (laughs) She's laughing at me now. But we don't. And if you're in a human relationship with anybody, if you get to know somebody well, you will not see eye to eye with them all the time. And there are some times when we can be discussing something, and actually one of us will perhaps overstep what we should be saying to each other. And we'll say something that may just cut a little bit, maybe a little bit hurtful, and we may regret it. Both of us do it. I think I'm fair in saying that, aren't I? Yeah, we both do it. It's not just me. It's not just Claire. It's both of us do it. But you know what happens as a result of those conversations? It's actually not that we can press rewind and pretend that it's never happened. We have two options. We can either live with hurt, live with bitterness... Or we can live with something more amazing going forward and say, actually, we forgive. We don't hold it against one another. And we start to move forward. And we start again from that point. Not with the regrets of what has happened, but we're saying, actually, we forgive that. And we now move on. Forgiveness in that kind of situation means we don't hold it against. But we can move forward. Just think of the scripture, all different characters in the Bible who mucked up massively who found themselves, if you like, in the depths. I was just thinking about this. You know, the list could go endlessly on, couldn't it, really? But think about, like, David, King David and Bathsheba. What does he do? He sees a woman um, bathing on a roof. He has an affair with her. He then ends up killing her um, husband, and it just goes from bad to worse. Yet he's restored at the end of it. But he has to live with some of what's gone on. Other people, Moses, Peter. You know, Peter, the one who said that three times... He denied Jesus. Three times he denied him. He said he wouldn't, but he did. What did Jesus do? Did he press the rewind button and say, let's have another go? No. He brought him through into something far more amazing at the other end. The thief on the cross. What a way to end your life, isn't it? Crucifixion. Knowing that actually you're there because you deserve to be there. Thief on the cross said he deserved to be there. Yet he turned to Jesus and said simply, remember me 
remember me. What happens next? Does he get the chance to press rewind? Does he get the chance to undo all that stuff he's done? No. But he dies knowing he is forgiven. Knowing that today he will be in paradise with Jesus. There is no offer of the rewind button. But there is the offer of the reset. There is the offer of the new start. God will forgive today if you are in the depths. He will lift you up. He will put you on a new track. And you'll be walking with him. Look at this from 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The slate is wiped clean. Not the rewind button, but the reset button. You know, if today you are in the depths of failure, does crying out to God mean that everything is suddenly going to become all rosy again? No, it doesn't. But it means you're back in God's will. It means you're back walking with the Lord. It means that you're free of guilt and shame and that sense of of all that hanging over you and pulling you down. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed his transgressions from us. What an amazing reminder this morning just as we come to take communion in a few moments that God in Christ has brought us forgiveness. The depths have been defeated. The swirling sea need not suck us down. The chaos need not carry on in our lives. Now, over the years, I think um, I've chatted to an awful lot of people about forgiveness because I think it's something, basically, as human beings, we really struggle with, isn't it? It's something we struggle to get our head around and and to work through what it means. And I'm convinced that it's possibly one of the most difficult things as Christians that we have to understand what the biblical teaching of forgiveness is actually all about. You know, God's forgiveness of us is instant, sufficient, and complete. So the minute we come and confess and repent before the Lord, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken our transgressions. God does not remember it. Now, we may be good at forgetting things, but we can't choose to forget things. You know, sometimes we, we can accidentally forget, but we cannot easily choose to forget. We are human beings. We are not God. Often our cries of the depth are not simply that we've sinned against God, but they're actually that we've sinned against other people. We've disappointed ourselves. We have failed against what we would expect from ourselves, and we failed other people in that way as well. Self-forgiveness is actually the hardest part of forgiveness, I often find. You you can ask for God to forgive you, ask for other people to forgive you, but then to get to that point where you actually forgive yourself can be really difficult. And that's a journey. It's often a journey to that point. But you know that journey starts with God. It starts when we say, Lord, I know that you've forgiven me. I know that you've forgiven me. Give me patience to walk through this journey. Just as the great men and women of Scripture needed patience to walk through what had happened because of their failure. We need that as well, which brings us to the next theme of this psalm. The journey starts with God, but it works outwardly. Verse 5, look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. Waiting. We don't do waiting well, I don't think, necessarily. 
I get quite impatient if I have to wait for anything. But I was at a conference a couple of years back, and we were singing um, quite a number of songs, and the person leading it had picked songs that were all about waiting for God. Now, they were good songs in the sense that they were, they were scriptural, they, they were all linked to, to various things in the Psalms. But the more I sang, and perhaps it was just me being very simple, but I was starting to get a bit confused. Because I kept thinking, you know, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for God to do? What, what's this all about? Is it like waiting for the bus to arrive? You know, that suddenly if we wait long enough, God will show up. Is it like waiting for a friend who says they're coming and we, we just hope they'll appear at some point? Is it like waiting for the post that may never arrive? What's it about? Or is it about waiting for some kind of experience that means that God will confirm what he's already said he'll do? But then I'm reading the psalm, I think, well, human experience cannot be the gauge of what God is doing in our hearts. Human experience is far too fickle for that. So what is it? Well, I think actually this is really profound, what is going on here, about waiting for the Lord. We live with the promises of God about forgiveness. We know that is instant. We know that the minute that we come and we say, I'm in the depths, Lord have mercy, I cry out to you, we get forgiven. We know that. We're not waiting for forgiveness. We're not waiting for that to happen. We're not waiting for some kind of experience to say that that's been underlined. But actually, we're waiting with certain hope for everything God has said to be completed. The church is in the continuous state of waiting for Jesus to return. You know, in this life, we will know a certain amount of freedom from sin if we keep walking in discipleship and journeying with the Lord. But we will not know that complete freedom that we will know the other side of eternity. And so we're in waiting mode. We're waiting. Waiting for all of God's promises to be fulfilled. The journey starts in this life. The journey from the depth starts here. But we may have to wait for eternity before we fully realize everything that Christ has done. We see, but through a glass dimly, don't we, Paul says. Then we shall see face to face. We shall know everything once we see Christ in glory. And so we get to verse 6. I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. The imagery there is of the city. Imagine a city walls. And what they used to do, they used to post watchmen to wait for the sun coming up. And when the sun came up, the gates of the city would open and the the daily sort of things that went on in the city would take place. Now, there are many things in life when you go outside that we we have no sort of of control over wondering what will happen. The weather can do anything, can't it? The temperature of the day can do anything. Whether there's cloud cover, again, can do anything. But we know when the sun is coming up. We know what time the sun will set. There are things that we can work out and things that we can know. What a reminder in this psalm that actually there are things that we can be sure of. Things that we can be confident in. Those things are the promises of God. Just as sure as the sun rises, we can wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. Just as sure as the sun rises, we know that one day Jesus will return. Just as sure as the sun rises, we know that God, when we cry to him out of the depths, will forgive us. And so then the psalm ends with a call to Israel to put their trust again into the Lord. 
Israel will be redeemed. All her sins will be redeemed. And so we come to communion in a few moments. This is not a place of vague hope. When we take bread and wine, we're we're not hoping that somehow God may forgive us or might just be look on us with a a little bit more favour. But it's a place of sure and certain hope. Sure and certain hope. Now, I don't know today, I don't know whether you're in the depths. I don't know whether you really feel like you're being tangled down by stuff. If you are today, can I encourage you to come to this table and say, Lord, have mercy. Knowing that he will. Knowing that there is forgiveness. Knowing that there is the fresh start. Not the rewind, but the reset. And knowing that as sure as the sun will rise, God will be faithful to his word. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to us. I want to thank you that in that psalm we see the heart of the gospel. That as soon as we turn to you in repentance and faith, you forgive us. No matter how far down we've sunk, there is nowhere we can go that you can't rescue us. But Lord, I really want to pray that maybe those of us here this morning, who, if we're honest, just with ourselves right now in the, in the silence, that we are sinking. We are being sucked down, and at the moment we're not doing anything about it. If that's you this morning, can I just encourage you to, to use this psalm? To cry to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy. God's character is such that he will forgive you. He will forgive you. Lord, we rejoice in all you've done. We celebrate because we can be called your forgiven people this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name.